So, Psalm 107. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. Some were fools through their sinful ways and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, for let, and let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep, for he commanded and raised up the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' ends. Then... They cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm still. The waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad, and the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. He turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water. And there he lets the hungry dwell, and they establish a city to live in. So they sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing, they multiply greatly, and he does not let their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. 
but he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Can you remember a time when the light bulb turned on in your head or in your heart and you came to appreciate someone or something in a new and undeniable way? I I do believe Psalm 107 is like that. It's a light bulb moment. The light bulb goes off in the heart and mind of how good God has truly been. And it fills the psalmist's heart to overflowing. You can't help but just burst out. And I think that's the call to you and me today as well. Now recall, as I've been explaining, the Psalms are divided into five books. And Psalm 107 is the first Psalm in book five. I explain the theme of the first four books. Book five, the big theme, is calling God's people to envision their glorious destiny and victory in Christ once again. Book five is calling God's people to live in the present by faith in God's future sure victory. Book five is calling God's people to have our minds, our thoughts, our emotions shaped not by present difficult circumstances, but instead to be shaped and intentionally joyful, intentionally happy by being set on Christ and our glorious future in him. And we know the Psalms ultimately speak to Christ because Jesus himself said so clearly, the Psalms, they speak of me. And so we're to set our, uh, our hope and be intentionally joyful by setting our hopes on Christ, his glorious future, our glorious future in him, by letting the excitement of what's to come overwhelm our present attitude in spite of our circumstances. And so book five is the great, I'm looking forward to, and here, the kingdom of God. That keeps us going through the ups and downs of life. Oftentimes, we need little something to look forward to to get us through that next season. Well, the psalmist is saying, the great I'm looking forward to is God's kingdom. So today, it's my prayer that our hearts would respond by faith to Psalm 107 uh, with words something like this. Lord, thank you. Your steadfast love endures forever. This is an act of faith that in spite of what's going on in your life right now or what you see out in the world, I choose to thank you. And it's also my prayer that our faith might overflow into good work because faith without works is dead into some real change in some manner as this. So help me wisely consider your steadfast love uh, as my only hope in life and death. And that good work, it's, it's an easy one to, to offer you because the psalmist himself says that very explicitly at the very end, and, and we'll meditate on that in a bit. And so the church were to proclaim and point to the near kingdom, Christ's near kingdom with regards to this ultimate hope. We're to be a life-preserving salt and a guiding and illuminating light in regards to the truest and most lasting life because God's steadfast love endures forever. It's the one thing that endures forever. 
The church is meant to faithfully tell others about the truest life, not only on this earth where it matters, but, but, excuse me, where it matters most, in eternity, in the new heavens and new earth. So for the rest of our time, meditating on Psalm 107, I hope this question will uh, help us um, just get a good handle on Psalm 107. What does gratitude to God look like? What does gratitude to God look like? We're meant to be overflowing in that gratitude. I hope this will give you some touch points to just even look in the spiritual mirror for yourself. See, am I living in this gratitude because of God's steadfast love that endures forever? And I want to draw out, do my best to draw out three things that I see. First, a wide trust in God's goodness. Second, a deep understanding of my need to be saved. And third, a soaring love for him. So first, what what does gratitude to God look like? A wide trust in God's goodness. Gratitude to God, it's going to demonstrate the breadth of your trust that God is good. And the idea is that we're to be in a constant state of gratitude. Even as we lament in life at times, we wrestle with our faith and, and what we see out in the world, but nevertheless, the undercurrent to all of that is meant to be a constant gratitude toward God for his goodness. Now, where do we see this? Verse one, oh, give thanks to the Lord. What a way to just powerfully start off book five as the psalmist looked at this vision of God's kingdom once and for all fulfilled. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. That's a command. That's an imperative. The psalmist commands us to give thanks to the Lord And so it's fitting. That's why it says, let, verse 2, the redeemed of the Lord say so. Just as it's fitting for, I officiated a a, a wedding on Friday, just as it's fitting for the, the bride to be beautifully decked out in white, for the groom to come dressed to the nines, just as it's fitting for them to be dressed that way, it's fitting for the Christ follower to give thanks to the Lord. Now notice with me that the command is to be grateful toward God. To have gratitude overflow from our hearts to God specifically. And it's not an empty, mindless, or irrational, I told you so, this is just the way it is, unreasoned command. No, the psalmist gives us a strong reason to give thanks to the Lord. And what's the reason? He gives us two. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for because he is good. That's the first reason. Second reason for because his steadfast love endures forever. The first reason, because God is good. And so a characteristic of genuine faith is that genuine faith sees that God is good. Trusting God's goodness is an important test of your faith. Now here's what I mean. Let's start just thinking of ourselves. Let's say you're really hoping to get a certain job. This summer, we really pushed our kids. You got to make some money this summer. And it was an ordeal for them to find a job. Let's say you're really hoping to get a certain job. You prepare your best for the resume, the interview, the application, but you don't get the job. In that moment, do you still believe that God is good? What if you really want to get married or have a child, but doors don't seem to open? Do you believe in those moments of disappointment that God is good? 
as you look beyond yourself and out onto the headlines into the world, we see more and more of life that tempts us to question, God, are you really good? You hear of children being trafficked. You hear of kind people being blindsided with sickness. You hear of friends potentially losing their job because of differing moral values from their colleagues and bosses. You see a culture that is increasingly scoffing at God, mockingly and arrogantly rejecting scriptures and and scripture's description of God and his morals. And even when you attempt to meet naysayers in the middle in polite, respectful dialogue, there appears to be no genuine openness. Even as you do your best to show them that you at least conceptually understand where they're coming from, you're trying to dialogue, but Now, another way to summarize what I'm trying to describe here is the age-old perennial problem. How could a good God allow suffering? That's how skeptics of Christianity would phrase it. And the typical argument goes like this. I just don't believe in the God of Christianity that he exists. God allows terrible suffering in the world or evil, so he might be either all-powerful but not good enough, to end all that evil and suffering, or else he might be all good, but not powerful enough to end evil and suffering. Either way, the all good, all powerful God of the Bible couldn't exist. That's how they argue. And they continue, and many say, this isn't just a philosophical issue for me. This is personal. I won't believe in a God who allows suffering, even if he, she, or it exists. Maybe God exists, maybe not. But if he does, he can't be trusted. But the psalmist saying the very opposite. No, even in those times, do you trust God's goodness? And if I'm honest, as a Christian, as a Christ follower, it affects the Christian too. For the Christian, you look out on the world and you want to see the God of the Bible demonstrate his power to save people. But as a Christ follower, you wonder, God, I've been praying for this person. Where are you? Come and work. For me, as a brother and as a pastor, I look out and see a global church divided with so many denominations and camps that can't be on mission together. I feel sad that so many people, as well as another issue, I do my best to share Christ with them, but they don't open up their hearts to him. And this is why I'm saying that Gratitude demonstrates the breadth, the width of your trust that God is good. Look, if if the shore, if land is the safe place, and as you leave the comfort and safety of home and land and sailing farther and deeper into the vast and choppy waters of the ocean, as you see more of the brokenness of life, does your heart still trust that God is good in and above all the chaos. And this is why it's helpful to take in the psalmist's second reason for gratitude. Because his steadfast love endures forever. Whenever the Bible speaks of God's steadfast love, it's speaking. You could just replace that with God's covenantal love. That God, who he is, is like the perfect faithful husband who will never forsake his vows, never forsake his commitment 
to his bride and will love and pursue to the very end and will ultimately, in the end, bring about ultimate goodness. And so the quality the psalmist wants us to be enthralled by is the fact that God's steadfast love endures forever. Not just good in what we can see right in front of our face, but in the grand scheme of eternity. So the psychology here is simple, and it's a, it's a good thing. The, the Christian life is also about really disciplining the mind. And so I, I you know, not embarrassed to say the psychology here is simple. If we have something good that is forever in our lives, that becomes, that, that becomes a consoling comfort even in our darkest days. We can find a real, genuine, divine pick-me-up when we are down. But it's not just a a fluffy self-help technique. No, this is the one goodness, God's steadfast love, the one power, the one love that endures forever. If that's your hope, if that's your consolation, take no shame in turning to that again and again every day to fall back on that as your strength, to cry out to God, to pick you up, to lift you up. Now, I think I'm going to probably even offend the psalmist by my attempt at giving you a phrase that I hope will stick to your... I hope scripture will be stickier for you, but maybe this will help. The Christ follower says, I choose happiness through thankfulness for God's forever goodness, okay? I think that's what the psalmist is calling us to, that we choose happiness. We choose to be happy, how? Through thankfulness for God's forever goodness. That's an act of faith. Now here's the point. It's so important for the Christ follower, for God's covenantal people to continually remember how God has saved us, how he's been good to us, And how his steadfast love that endures forever will complete our story of salvation. He'll carry on to completion the good work that he's begun. And to see this as God's goodness, God's undeserved kindness. Now, unless we're willing to see that God has been good to us in this way, unless our receiving love language, right? We all have love languages, giving love language, receiving love language. Unless one of our receiving love languages becomes God's goodness in saving us from our sins, then we'll never see our need for God. We'll never, we'll struggle to be grateful to God and we'll be unhappy Christians, which I think is a bit of an oxymoron. So here's why we need to consider the second point. What does gratitude to God look like? A deep understanding of my need to be saved. Talked about a wide trust in God's goodness. Now a deep understanding of my need to be saved. So what the psalmist does for the next almost 30 verses, almost three-fourths of this entire prayer, he describes four general salvation stories. But I think they're, they're repeated themes If you took a survey and tried to categorize people's testimonies, they would fall somewhere in these four stories of salvation, or maybe more, one or or all four of them. 
one or more of them. But four different stories of how God has redeemed. And I hope you can relate to at least one or more of these stories and therefore continually find reason to give thanks. That's the psalmist's goal here. He wants to remind us that we keep hoping in God's finished, complete salvation, his kingdom of Christ's kingdom coming, and that we're saved to stay in thankfulness because of that. If you stay hopeful in this way, that'll give you strength to persevere in your race of faith until the very end. Now, on a side note, this is why participating in communion regularly is so important. Communion keeps us face-to-face with our salvation story. So let's look at the four stories that the psalmist draws out here. First, we see a story of, and, and how I want to summarize it, is being saved from self-security. Being saved from self-security. Many of us were working so hard to secure our lives, but the psalmist calls out for us to be saved from our self-security. Now, where do we see this? Now, every story, he triggers it with some. And that's why there are, you'll see there are four some, some people, four times he addresses four kinds of people. So some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. So I want you to notice here that salvation is described as a city to dwell in. Think about it with me. Ultimately, what does a good city represent? A good city is meant to be, I think, five things. First, a home. You want your city to be a home that you are happy to live in. But a home that is flourishing, has security, is full of joy and justice. That's why for the psalmist, lostness, as he poetically describes it here, is having no home, wandering in the desert wasteland. And the soul faints because of hunger and thirst. Or perhaps we're trying to build our own home, but the net effect is it feels like a desert. I'm left wanting, hungry and thirsty. And his poetic way of describing us searching for flourishing, security, joy, and justice, but always feeling like we're still hungry and thirsting as we search for it in this world, perhaps even in Toronto. And so God defines lostness as wandering in a desert, not being able to find the city which we can call home. And so God describes salvation then through the psalmist as leading us by a straight way until we reach his city. I encourage you, if you haven't yet, just keep plodding along and chip away at trying to read the Bible from beginning to end. And you'll see a beautiful, beautiful, grand narrative arc. And we see in Revelation the ultimate final version of this city that our hearts are longing for. And so salvation is to be welcomed by the straight way of following Jesus and reaching this new city, this new Jerusalem that we see in Revelation 21 and that Jesus is preparing for us in the new heavens and the new earth to dwell in. Now, if the first story of salvation is deliverance from self-security, trying to build this, this city for ourselves, this home for ourselves, 
and then humbly realizing I can't do it and looking to God for this home, if that's the first story of salvation, the second story of salvation is being brought out of darkness, from despair, from feeling oppressed, from the pit of what I want to call self-darkness. Self-darkness. Let me put it into just everyday 21st century terms that we'll recognize. And I think this is what the psalmist is getting at. Are you depressed? Are you doubting? Are you lethargic in life? Are you unmotivated? Do you feel hopeless? Do you feel even, perhaps even at times, biochemically, the, just the weight, your body is like wearing a, a, just, a, 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 just a coat of chain mail, it feels like? psalmist, I think, is describing your story, and, and I would uh, be able to relate to the second story oftentimes. Now, let me make it absolutely clear. Certainly, there are times when it comes to, say, depression, anxiety, and other things that, where we feel dark, our soul feels dark. There are certain just medical conditions that need to be taken care of medically. But the psalmist, in addition to that, is, I think, saying something very provocative here and something we should pay attention to. What's provocative is that the psalmist identifies one important root that we have to consider when our lives feel dark. And the psalmist is saying, gently but in our face, that oftentimes it's self-inflicted. The psalmist defines lostness and this second story of salvation where we feel like we're sitting in darkness in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, perhaps even ideating suicidal thoughts and so forth, he says, for they had rebelled against the words of God. Now this is provocative because of how our modern times generally explain when we feel dark or down. A subtle lie of Satan and our culture is that our own hearts and our own modern times, that our depression, our anxieties are only clinical, only biochemical disorders, and then we just have to be properly diagnosed, and there's a scientific way to explain everything and solve everything. We're a generation of shifting blame to diagnoses, irrationally resigning our shortcomings to genetics alone, or shirking our full responsibility. Now, as I said, certainly there are times where genetically our ailments are, are determined by just our DNA, our, the science and medicine and so forth, but that are beyond our control. But if we're humble enough, we'll listen to the psalmist and consider that we have created for ourselves by our own choices this darkness in our lives. The psalmist is saying that some of us find ourselves sitting in darkness, feeling oppressed in life because we have straight up rejected and rebelled against God's ways and his word. Living the life that Christ calls us to, seeking to keep in step with his spirit, being filled with the spirit and bearing the fruit of the spirit. We have deliberately chosen to disobey God's commands. And so we should not be surprised when we have rebelled against God, that we find ourselves depressed. When I'm dark and down in my own heart, I will ask the Spirit, search me, search me. Is there anything offensive 
in my heart. That sometimes when I'm down, it's because of my own choices. Please show me. And so salvation then is when God intentionally humbles his people. He bowed their hearts down. God bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them from their distress. Salvation is when God intentionally humbles his people, those who would, the Bible calls the elect, those who would, would once and for all finally admit, I've rebelled against God's words, and then being brought to the beautiful place of realizing they need to cry out to God for help. Now, if the second story of salvation involves us not realizing at times, we get into a dark place in life, we don't realize that we've made sinful choices and finding ourselves creating our own self-darkness. The third story of salvation here is being saved from deliberately, deliberately, where the second story is perhaps you didn't realize you made these choices. But the third kind is deliberately making sinful choices and playing the fool, full of folly, as we lead ourselves down a path of self-destruction. First, Self-security, being saved from that. Now self-darkness, and now self-destruction. And that's why the psalmist says, now some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. And so we go about just making self-harming choices, just deliberately because we want perhaps just to pursue pleasure, or we think what will make us happy. Think of Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. And when the son, the younger son, he goes out and squanders. He's the fool, playing the fool full of folly, squandering his inheritance on women and alcohol and, and just sex, drugs, and rock and roll of his time. And he gets to this lowest point, eating scraps in a disgusting and humiliating pig pen and realizes, having squandered all his riches, the his, his heart finally cries out and returns to his father who is symbolic of God in this parable. And so what does salvation look like for that prodigal son and for the psalmist in this third story? Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. That's where I get the notion. I think the psalmist is trying to confront those who would be on this path of self-destruction. You're just intentionally making choices that are harmful for yourself. And so see that it's God's word. God's word. They finally remember God's word. They finally take it. And I see it all the time, just in my own peers. As we would grow up together through high school, they were like the prodigal son. They were wanting to sow all their wild oats, and they'd just make their lives so messy. And then they finally get married, have kids, and then all of a sudden they realize, okay, time for me to grow up. And then they return to church, and they're more open to the gospel. And now, for once and for all, they're, they're finally taking God's word seriously because they're finally opening up to the fact that it's God's word that, that heals. It's God's word that's full of wisdom and right sense and sound judgment. 
And so it leads them back onto a path of life, away from their own self-destructive behavior. Now, the final story, I think, is very relevant to Torontonians. Why? They say a phrase, uh, if you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. I think it's the same for Toronto. If you can make it in Toronto, you can make it anywhere. Most people in Toronto are trying to make it just to afford to live in Toronto. If you can do that, that's success. <laughs> to make rent, to afford a mortgage, to study well and, and succeed, to find healthy community, to find godly love and marriage, to do well in your career, and on and on. It's difficult in a city like Toronto. Even in the eight years of our church, a few families tried to make it in Toronto, but they said to me, Albert, we, we just we can't afford it here. We're going to move out. I remember in the early days of the church, a family like that. And as we pursue life in Toronto, we can begin to think, and as we are able to establish ourselves whether Christian or not, we begin to think we're all that. And so the psalmist describes the fourth and final story of salvation as what all call being saved from my own self-grandiosity, my own self-delusional ambition. Now, where do we see this? The final sum. And some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. Already in the service, the ocean has been referenced several times, and, and that's kind of neat. And, and, and for the Hebrews, the ocean, the waters, the waves, represented symbolically the chaos of life. It was a metaphor for all that is chaotic. And so the picture here that the psalmist paints is these people who have the notion, who have the gumption, the audacity to say, I'm going to go and conquer the ocean. I'm going to go and conquer the chaos of the world and do business on the great waters. I'm going to become successful and rich and accomplished. And so there are those of us who think we will conquer the world economically, politically, socially, and so this metaphor speaks to the human ambition to bring order out of chaos, to become masters of our own universe through business, science, technology, arts, whatever other field and industry. But we see that God ultimately opposes them. God ultimately will not let us believe that we can be greater than him, that we are gods in and of ourselves. Verse 24 onward I'll just read here, they saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. Meaning they got out there trying to do life and salvation here is finally realizing I'm not the captain of my own ship. I'm not a master of the universe. For God commanded and raised the stormy wind. And what they realize is that God himself is over all the chaos. That God, in his goodness, the faith, the deep faith of the Christian that is even in the chaos of the world, that God is still working out his ultimate good plan for history, for the world, and even in the micro sense for my life. If I surrender my life to him. That God himself has ordered the chaos. And so verse 27, I love this, this phrase, this description by the psalmist. They reeled. These people who thought they could master the world, they reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. 
And so finally, humbly realizing that there's someone greater than them, God and his son, Jesus the Christ. So all of this brings us full circle. The beginning of the psalm called us to give thanks to the Lord. Now, did you notice that at the end of each story of salvation, the psalmist, almost like a song chorus, calls God's people to uh, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love. In verse 8, 15, 21, 31, this is repeated. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. And even that phrase, the children of man, the psalmist here, maybe whether he realized it or not, it wasn't just the children of Israel. And notice at the beginning of the psalm that God's intention is to bring people from north, east, west, and south. This is a wonderful foresight that through Christ, that God will gather a people, not just through ethnic Israel, but through the whole world from every culture. And so we need to consider just our third and final point. What does gratitude to God look like? A soaring love for God. A soaring love for God. Because gratitude to God, if, you're, if you can be thankful to God, it demonstrates the height of your love for him. That no matter what is going on in your life, whatever you see and you're discouraged by as you look out onto the world, that you thank God. And ultimately, gratitude to God for him. And so the psalmist ends for the last 10 verses simply recapping everything he's already described of God's goodness through the four salvation stories. But the undeniable big theme is this. We think we're doing okay. This is the pattern. But God humbles us and brings us low. And then we're faced with the choice. Do we cry out to God for salvation or not? Do we acknowledge our need for his grace or not? And so this is why the psalmist ends the way he does. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. And so let me end with one of Jesus' parables that brings it all together. Also from Luke's gospel where the story of the prodigal is from. Picking up in verse 41, there was a Pharisee. The scene is there's a Pharisee. Jesus is dining at a Pharisee's home. And Jesus, he senses self-righteousness in the Pharisee's heart, especially as a woman interrupts the meal. And this woman was questionable morally, but she is pouring out a lavish expression of devotion and worship to Jesus, washing his feet with her tears. And the Pharisee is full of self-righteousness and indignation. How can you let this happen, Jesus? How would you let someone so um, sinful even touch you this way? And so Jesus tells a story. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii which is the equivalent to um, uh, millions of dollars, and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? And so Simon the Pharisee answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. 
Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she, was, she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss of greeting, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. See, Jesus' point is, if we understand God's steadfast love and that it endures forever, we'll have a soaring love for our God. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And so Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I believe the psalmist in his heart was ultimately looking forward to this Jesus telling that story to fulfill his prayer. Who's the one who is truly preparing a home for us with many rooms? Who is the one who is preparing the new Jerusalem, the new city, the bride without blemish? Who knew the dark night of the soul like no other human being as he bore the weight of all the shackles of humanity's sin and cried out in despair on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who is the one who loved all the prodigals so genuinely and graciously that he was questioned why he would dine with tax collectors and prostitutes? Who is the one who forsook all the ambition, all the glory of the throne of heaven to be found humbled in human form so that we in our lives and good works might actually bear fruit into eternity and not have the disappointment of it ending with this life? Who is the one who literally calmed the chaotic stormy sea into peaceful glassiness with his one word? In all these things, there's only one. His name is Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, help us by faith to thank you because your steadfast love endures forever. And so help us to be wise and consider your steadfast love. No matter what is going on in our lives or how discouraged we might get by what we see out in the world, that we would always find time and reason and voice and intentionally expressing and sharing our gratitude towards you. We thank you that when we look at Jesus, it's the most convincing reason to always be full of thanks. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.